We're going to be uh, reading from the Bible now, so if you grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we're going to be starting at verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. Brilliant. Thanks, Chris. Do you keep Luke chapter 22 open in front of you? Kids, do grab a sheet if that's helpful uh, for you to follow along and listen uh, to God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus says that the scriptures, your word, are all about him. Father, please help us to see Jesus clearly in your word this morning, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I think we said it a number of times now, but 2020 is a year that we're not going to forget very quickly, isn't it? I wonder if you've played that game where you imagine yourself in 10 years' time uh, talking about the year the world stood still, Uh, the year when countries were brought into lockdown, when schools were closed, when human contact was against the law. Uh, 2020 is going to be one of those years that stands out in our memory. But as unprecedented and as strange as this last year has been, it's not the only life-changing event that we've lived through, is it? There are all sorts of big world events, ones that we will remember and ones that we will read about uh, that will live long in our memory. Uh, Events that have changed us and uh, have changed the world that we live in. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at one particular event in history, We're going to spend a few weeks looking at a 24-hour period that has changed the world forever. We're going to see how the last 24 hours of Jesus' life 2,000 years ago is the most significant event in history and how it affects every single person's life, whoever they are, wherever they're from, whatever their background or history, this 24-hour period changes everything. And we're going to start those 24 hours today by looking at a meal. It's an important, life-changing meal that Jesus shares with his friends. But before we get to the meal, we need to back up a little bit. Because we're jumping into this series right at the very end of Luke's Gospel in the last few chapters And so it's helpful to think about how we've got here. Luke was a doctor who lived around 2,000 years ago. And he decided to carefully investigate everything that had been going on around this person, Jesus. He, He gathered evidence, he spoke to eyewitnesses, he researched and recorded everything he could about this man. And if you were to go back and read through Luke's account, you would see that all of his research, all of his evidence, pointed to one big conclusion. It pointed to the fact that this man, Jesus, was a man like no other. In fact, the repeated claim throughout Luke's book, throughout his investigation, is that Jesus is none other than the Son of God. For 20 chapters, Luke has been showing that Jesus can do things or does things that only God can do. Healing people with just a word, calming storms, raising the dead. 
And as he does all these amazing things, he spends the whole time talking about God's kingdom, his kingdom. Jesus says and does things only God would say and do. And, and all of this talk about being God's son, about being his, his Messiah, his king, would it upset a lot of people, particularly the religious leaders. You see, they were worried that they might lose uh, some of their power, their, their control over the people if this guy, Jesus, became too popular. And so, they wanted to get rid of him. They plotted and schemed to get rid of this Jesus. And that pretty much brings us to this part of Luke, to the start of these 24 hours. And it's here that Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what is about to happen to him. It's here that he's going to show them what his imminent death is all about, what difference it's going to make, not just to their lives then, but to everyone forever. And so that's our aim this morning, and our aim over these next few weeks. We're going to listen to Luke. We're going to listen to his account, and we're going to see and hear what happens to Jesus in these last 24 hours of his life on earth. And as we do that, my, my big hope is that we'll see and understand why this is the most life-changing, significant 24 hours in all of history. So let's begin in chapter 22, where we see first that Jesus' death deals with our sin. Jesus' death deals with our sin. Like I said, these things that Jesus has been saying and doing up until this point have, have really done two things. They've attracted lots and lots of followers, people that have been amazed by his teachings and his miracles. But not everyone has been so keen on Jesus. By the time we reach the start of chapter 22, there are a lot of people that want to put a stop to him. And so as we read those first few verses, it would be easy for us to think, well, Jesus is about to die and he's going to die because, well, the religious leaders want to plot against him and put an end to him. Or Jesus is going to die because one of his friends, Judas, is going to betray him. Or Jesus is going to die because, well, it looks like Satan is going to get the better of him. But although plenty of people are involved in the events that lead up to Jesus' death, Luke wants us to be crystal clear that ultimately, Jesus is the one in control. Nothing that is about to happen to him is accidental or random. Nothing is beyond him or happening to him that he is not in control of, from timings to locations, all of it is deliberate and all of it is designed to teach something. We can see that in the case of, the detail of this meal that Jesus is about to share with his disciples. In verses 7 to 13, at the start of the chapter, you can see all these practical preparations are taken care of. Jesus seems to have arranged everything for this special meal to take place exactly where he wants it to. But this is more than Jesus just showing really good organizational skills. The thing that Luke really wants us to see is that, that Jesus is arranging these events so that he can share this particular meal at this particular moment. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, 
And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to share this meal with you now. He ensures that that his death coincides with this Passover festival. Why is that? Why is it so important that Jesus shares this meal on the eve of his death? It's all to do with what the Passover represents. I began by helping us to think about significant events in the past. And for God's people, one of the most significant events in their history was the Exodus. The time in Israel's history when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Steve has already helped us to think about this. For hundreds of years, God's people lived under the brutal oppression of the Egyptians. Until one day, God raised up Moses, and through him, he carried out his judgment on Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians. God sent plague after plague, and each one came with a message, let my people go. Free them so that they can worship me alone. Uh, but if you know the story, you know that, that Pharaoh refused to listen. He, he hardened his heart. He, he would not listen to the Lord. And so eventually the final plague came. Every firstborn son in Egypt would die. God's judgment would come to every house in the land. And the only way to escape it, the only way for the firstborn son to be spared, was through the death of a lamb. God promised his judgment would come, but he said if a lamb was killed and its blood painted on the door frames of the house, then his hand of judgment would pass over the people inside. In other words, this lamb was to be a substitute. It would die in the place of the firstborn son. And so at the very heart of this Passover meal, a meal that was meant to remind the people of God's rescue in Egypt, was a lamb. The lamb was the the visual reminder that God rescued his people through the death of a substitute. And so as Jesus shares this Passover meal with his disciples, they would have all been sitting around and expecting to arrive at the part of the meal where they eat the lamb. But I wonder if you notice as you read it that the lamb doesn't come, does it? Luke makes no mention of a lamb. It's missing. And you can imagine it, can't you? Or I like to imagine it. There's, there's Peter, he was meant to bring the wine, and John was in charge of the flatbread. But, but who's got the lamb? And again, this is no accidental oversight from Jesus or from Luke. No, it's deliberate. The reason this key ingredient is missing, the reason Jesus breaks with hundreds of years of Passover tradition, is to show that this meal is really all about him. The reason the disciples don't have a a lamb for the Passover is because they're sitting right next to the true lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb that the Passover pointed to. You can see that in verse 18, just look what he says. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, I know these are, are familiar words to us today. We say them every time we take communion, but, but don't miss how shocking this would have been for the disciples back then. Jesus is saying here that the Passover, the meal that is meant to remind them of the most significant event in the history of God's people, is all about him. Everything that this meal was meant to remind them of, from substitute to sacrifice, from rescue to freedom, all of it was a picture, a shadow that pointed to something much, much greater. And so the reason Jesus is eager to share this Passover meal at this moment is to show that his death is the fulfillment of all that this meal pointed to. And so as John the Baptist says at the start of John's Gospel, Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, Jesus is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed for our sin. And so Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to see that his death deals with our sin because he is the true sacrifice given for us. He is the one who stands in the place of God's judgment and takes the death that we deserve. Jesus dies on the cross in the place of guilty sinners, a substitute so that we can receive forgiveness and life and freedom if we trust in him. This meal is meant to show us that Jesus' death deals with our sin. But that's not all. Because it also shows us that his death restores our relationship to God. That's the second thing we see. If you just look again at verse 20, what Jesus says, he says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus says not only will his death deal with our sin, it also bring us into a new covenant, a, a new relationship with God. Uh, what is the covenant that Jesus is talking about? Well, again, we're meant to think back to Exodus, where God made it crystal clear that he was rescuing his people for a reason, bringing them out of slavery for a reason. He was rescuing them for a relationship. And so as he brings them out of Egypt, God enters a covenant relationship with his people, a relationship in which he makes promises to them and they make promises to him. God had rescued and redeemed them. He had chosen them to be his special possession, a nation set apart for him. He would be their God and they would live together as his people. They would follow his laws and obey his commands. That's how it was meant to be. God rescued for a relationship. But the big problem was that, that the people repeatedly failed to do what God had asked. They failed to keep the covenant. Time and time again, they disobeyed God's word. They disregarded his goodness to them. And as a result, they ruined the relationship he had given them. And so the story of God's people in the Old Testament is one of failure, 
failure to keep the covenant, failure to live in right relationship with God. It's what we saw at the end of Ezra, wasn't it? But that's not where this story of God's people ends. Because right in the middle of their failure, God makes this amazing promise. Through his prophet Jeremiah, God promises to deal with their sin and failure by making a new covenant with them. And we can read that promise in Jeremiah 31. You can turn there or it'll be on the screen. Jeremiah 31 verse 31 says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Right into the middle of Israel's failure and sin, God promises this new covenant, this new relationship. And this time he says the laws, though they're not going to be written on tablets of stone, this time his law will be written on his people's hearts. Through the power of the Spirit, his Spirit, he will take his word and plant it deep inside of them so that their lives will be transformed from the inside out. And it's not just his law that the people will know, it's God himself. In the new covenant, anyone and everyone will know the Lord. And so it won't matter whether you're the high priest or a lowly peasant, because all can have access to God, access to a relationship with him as their father. How is that possible? How can God just start over a new covenant? How can a holy God that can have nothing to do with sin enter into a relationship with sinful people? Well, look at what Jesus says. Luke 22, verse 20, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It's through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrificial death, that this relationship with God is made possible. Jesus' death is the basis, the foundation of a relationship with God. And so can you see how how mind-blowing this must have been for the disciples as they sat down for what would have been a familiar Passover meal? Jesus says his death in less than 24 hours' time is going to bring about the new covenant. It's through him that a new relationship with God is going to be made possible. A relationship in which they can truly know God and live wholeheartedly for him. So you see, Jesus uses this Passover meal to show that his death deals with our sin and restores our relationship to God. No wonder he's so eager to share it with his friends. And no wonder he wants all his future disciples to continue 
to remember these things. You see, as Jesus reinterprets the Passover in Luke 22, he also establishes this new meal for his followers to share together. He says we're to eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of him. It's interesting, isn't it? Of all the things that Jesus said and did, it's his death that he explicitly tells us to remember. Why is that? Why focus on this? Well, I think it's because just like God's people throughout history, we can often be slow to understand and quick to forget what Jesus came to do. We can see that even in our passage this morning. Having listened to Jesus explain the life-changing significance of his imminent death for them, what did the disciples do? Verse 24, they start to have a fight about who's the top guy in the kingdom. Who's the greatest? Who's the most special? They've barely cleared the table before Jesus has to go over it again and explain to them what it is he's come to do. That he's come to serve them by giving his life for them. And in doing so, he demonstrates what true greatness in the kingdom of God is all about. Sacrificial service. You see, the disciples, they are slow to understand, quick to forget all that Jesus came to do. And we are just the same. We need to be reminded again and again and again of what it is Jesus came to do for us. We need to see again and again the life-changing significance of his death for sinners. And we need to ask that he would help us to understand what that means for life today. As we get up tomorrow morning, what difference does it make that Jesus died for sins? We need to remember. And that's what we're going to do as we share communion together in just a minute. But as we do, I just want us to notice really briefly two implications, two things to remember as we take this bread and wine together in a moment's time. The first is that Jesus' death should remind us that sin is serious. As we, re- as we remember Jesus' death, we need to understand that, that sin is so serious, so offensive, so awful, that the only way God could deal with it was through the death of his Son. Which means if we are ever tempted to minimize sin or to treat it as no big deal or if we find ourselves saying things like, well, that's just what I'm like, can't be helped. Well, the cross should remind us that the very thing we're trying to minimize in our minds is something that Jesus had to die for. His body was broken, his blood was poured out for our sin, which means it is always serious. Whatever society or people around us or we tell ourselves, sin is serious. But just as the cross reminds us of the seriousness of sin, it also shows us the greatness of God's love. That is the truly wonderful thing about the cross, isn't it? That the more we understand the horror of our sin, the more we see the depth of God's love for us. 
And so just listen to these familiar words, words on the side of our building, amazing words in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or Paul in Romans 5, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's as we remember Jesus' death that we can know for certain that God's love is greater than our sin. And so maybe you are someone who takes sin seriously. Maybe you take it so seriously that deep down you think you are too bad for God. That he doesn't want to know a person like you, especially not after the things you've done. He could never love someone like you. If that's you, if that's how you think about your sin, then let me encourage you today, as we take bread and wine together, to take a fresh look at the cross. To be reminded of the sheer greatness of God's love for sinners like you and me. That despite our sin, Jesus willingly gave his life. He poured out his blood. His body was broken so that we could know the undeserved, unending love of God as our Father. Jesus says, do these things in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we are sorry for how slow we are to understand and quick we are to forget what it is that Jesus has done for us. Father, forgive us for our small view of our sin, for when we minimize or trivialize things that Jesus died for. But Father, please forgive us for our small view of your great love. Father, today, through your word, by your spirit, as we, as we share communion together in just a moment, please fill our minds and our hearts with the greatness of your love for us in Jesus. Father, would these things transform the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about the people around us, and most importantly, the way that we think about and know you. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death for sinners like us. Help us to rejoice in your goodness and grace to us in him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.